Hello and welcome to Paranormal or What Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Ford. Hello everybody, how are you doing this week? My paranormal people, it's good to speak to you again. So last week I went to my haunted hotel and it was very quiet last week. So as any of you will know who uh, have investigated themselves, sometimes the spirits will come out and talk to you and sometimes they're just very quiet. So it was very, very quiet, although very enjoyable. I went with my friends, the ladies from Twinvestigate, so shout out from them. So this week we have a very interesting gentleman on the show and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him in a second and then we will get on. So he is a well-known travel psychologist. He's very well known in the USA. His name is Dr. Michael Bryan spelt B-R-E-I-N. And he is a ufologist as well. And he has some fascinating tales and takes on other worlds, UFOs and such like. We had a fantastic conversation. And so I think that you should settle down in your seat. You should get yourself a tot of something hot and spicy and you should put by a good hour and a half to sit down and listen to the chat between myself and Michael. It really was fantastic. Are you ready? Off we go. Good evening and welcome to Paranormal or What podcast with me, your host, Michaela Ford. This evening I have a fantastic guest who I've been very excited to meet. Um, His name is Michael Bryan. He is the travel psychologist. He originally coined the term travel psychology during his doctoral studies at the University of Hawaii and then became the world's first travel psychologist. He's also a ufologist. He's one who studies UFOs or UAPs as they're often referred to. He's been the state director for Hawaii and ambassador at large for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, the largest UFO research organization in the United States. Michael's often quoted by CNN, USA Today, NBC, Fox, BBC, and Lonely Planet News, along with a host of other distinguished um, television programs and magazines. My goodness. Welcome, Brian. <laughs> Michael, it's a, a wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. You've been a busy man. <laughs> I have. Yeah. Um, so I, the first question, when um, Michael very kindly sent me some of his books to have a look at, and my first question, so that all of our listeners um, know exactly what he does, is what's a travel psychologist? That's a really good question. And uh, first, uh, I uh, got bitten by the travel bug. Uh, and that's all it takes. And my life just began to revolve around traveling. I was on my path to become a clinical psychologist. 
actually, to be spending the rest of my life dealing with uh, the difficulties of life uh, for, with people. But I got so enthralled with the notion of traveling that I wound up uh, so far going around the world maybe two or three times. And, uh, you know, I did kind of a standard PhD program and thesis, other than the fact that I did it in Hawaii, which was a, a, a major motivating factor of how might I combine the dastardly difficult task of doing a PhD at the same time uh, enjoying life and building some travel into it. And that's why I decided I'm going to go to the University of Hawaii out in the middle of the Pacific, of which the travel industry was a very, very big part of life in Hawaii. And uh, I basically figured if I'm going to have to read a lot of books on the subject and come up to speed with psychology, social psychology mainly, uh, I might as well do it sitting in a beach chair under a palm tree. And that's exactly what I did. And I had a lot of fun doing a PhD. And I decided to meld together not only the more formal education that you normally get and involve yourself with doing a doctorate, uh, but I had all kinds of opportunities to explore the the idea of travel, what was travel all about. And the head of the department at the University of Hawaii had actually been involved in the travel industry. So I thought, here's a way to join the social science of psychology with uh, a life's interest and love that I had in travel. And, and Hawaii was a great place to do it. And in addition to studying uh, the psychology, social psychology, uh, I had great opportunities to explore the whole notion of the travel experience and uh, what roles travel play in people's lives. And so one of the nice activities I did was to work for the University of Hawaii's Peace Corps training program, where they trained people to go off uh, and live for a couple of years, in this case, Samoa in the Pacific, or uh, uh, Tonga. And I did a really interesting thing. I sat in with all the trainees and I learned the Tongan language because I wanted to see what probably one of the world's best foreign language training methods would be, and that is the Peace Corps program. And just very quickly, very briefly, uh, for five hours a day, we rotated language huts with different instructors and just talked nonstop, uh, just doing the things that uh, got you to really be able to speak a little bit by the time the training was over. So uh, basically doing a PhD in social psychology, but yet asking the question, uh, from that point on, about 2,000 world travelers that I met and encountered in my own travels in Hawaii, wherever I was, and uh, basically had the task of interviewing travelers. What's travel all about? What's the best way to learn about what travel's about? I figured, ask travelers. And that's yeah. what I did for four decades. Wow. Okay. And um, 
Well, my first side question is, did you manage to retain the Tongan language or did it sort of come and then go again? Well, isn't that the truth? <laughs> if you don't use it, it disappears. But <laughs> I had fun. I yeah. became kind of like a teacher's pet. Uh, <laughs> they saw I was really motivated and I was good at languages and I loved doing it, whereas it was tedious for a lot of people. And so I got good at it. So they'd come over from Molokai, which was a little island where the training was taking place. They'd come back and forth, and I got to know them. They visited me in Honolulu, and we would talk a little bit of Tongan and a little bit of English, and it was a lot of fun, over a beer. Uh, oh. So that was... Uh, but yes, you don't use it, you lose it. And from time to time, I'm getting back into some of these languages. I've I've occupied my life with about 12 languages over time. And you're right. They come and they go. Uh, but I got to use them to some yeah. extent. And that, for me, was fun. And it enhances, of course, yeah. the travel experience and the whole psychology behind your experience. If you can get to know the people a little bit more through communicating and relating with them, uh that's a good aspect of becoming yeah. a good traveler. Yeah, I completely agree with that, having done quite a bit myself as well. So did have you come to any sort of conclusion? Is there a certain sort of person that is a persistent traveler? Yeah, I think that uh, you're not born a traveler, although I think we're born with the search for and love of novelty which is exploration. Yeah. And I believe we're born with that. And I believe that it's up to us to choose how we can become travelers rather than mere tourists. That's mm -hmm. uh, kind of a draw a line, kind of a continuum. You have a tourist, which is basically an uninvolved visitor uh, to another culture of uh, then you have the traveler who has learned some of the nonverbal and verbal ways of interacting with people just by having had the experiences of that, being open more to novelty and to learning and getting the rewards and pleasures of learning. So you morph from a tourist to a traveler, say maybe to an adventurer, maybe to an explorer. If you want to look through history at some of the world's greatest explorers, I think yeah. we go on a continuum. Fantastic. Um, so reading the um, openings to some of your books, um, you, you've written many, many, many books, um, including uh, a series called Rudd Strange, which is a series of books detailing people's experiences with the paranormal, including UFO encounters. Um, one of your first experiences, as I understand it, in the contiguous universe, you name as the Aloha Spirit. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Well, I think uh, uh, when I talked about the Aloha Spirit uh, in the introduction to one of uh, to to the books, yeah. Well, this professor that I was mentioning, who uh, was involved with the visitor industry. Uh, was was really on my side. We became friends. Uh, but at some point, 
I just refuse to get involved with the kinds of politics that can go on in graduate schools. Yeah. And I just had no idea, for example, that this one particular professor, uh, that they were trying to run him out of uh, the University of Hawaii. I just didn't have anything to do with it, wasn't interested in it. But I crossed paths with, with the professor that was very supportive of me. I had no idea that there was this going on. So I had selected this other professor uh, to kind of guide me in the thesis and the dissertation instead of my friend. I didn't think that they really cared one iota of, of which students were working with which professors, but they apparently just had a falling out. And I selected the one and I got my friend upset with me and we had a little falling out. But then he came around and he was a a, a decent human being after all. And uh, But here was the interesting thing. Uh, I've had a lifetime of paranormal experiences myself. Uh, I've been open to the idea of it. Uh, I've explored it a little bit. And I have never been afraid to consider it. You know, not necessarily to believe everything that I hear from everyone, but to give it some attention. And so one night I was uh, asleep and I began to have this lucid dream. And I began to see, I actually saw the gravestone of the professor that I was friends with, who the one that was involved in visitor industry. Mm -hmm. And I saw his name, I saw his name on the gravestone. And uh, I also knew that a mutual friend of ours, another graduate student who's very, very good friend of mine, would call me on Monday morning. This was Saturday night I was dreaming this. I'd get a call on Monday morning that my friend would tell me that her weaver, the professor, passed away. And that's exactly what happened. And I believe, in the end, that this professor friend of mine uh, wanted to let me know that we were still close, we are still good friends, and said goodbye to me in that experience. And uh, it panned out exactly uh, as uh, I had had this lucid dream. That was just one among other experiences. I've had other awarenesses of relatives, including my parents, uh, on the days that they passed on, uh, that I knew these things. I've had a number of synchronicity experiences in my life that were compound ones. I mean, it's it's rare enough that you you have a, a synchronicity, uh, something that seems to happen by chance, and you laugh and think, well, this is cute. Maybe it yeah. means something. But when you have compound synchronicities, like three things all together happening, all interrelated, or in one case I had a and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, what I call quintuple synchronicity. There's yeah. five or so more things happening, all coincidentally, all interrelated. So how is that possible to just happen by chance? Yeah. Uh, I suppose it might be like winning the lottery three or four times, like we hear some people rarely and occasionally do, but the chances are so extreme. So that yeah. was the Aloha spirit Uh the, the uh, uh, realization through a lucid dream that I knew was not an ordinary dream, 
that uh, someone who I've been close to and worked with, uh, this professor friend, uh, had passed away, let me know. And that was yeah. the famous aloha spirit of uh, uh, professing your friendship and caring between people. Yeah. It's it's incredible because um, I, I I know people that have had synchronicities and I will come back to asking about that later. Okay. Um. But but yet the ones where you win lots and lots of money seem to be much rarer <laughs> than the everyday ones, which is quite interesting. Um. So my next um question was about um a couple of the other um experiences that you've written about your personal experiences, if you don't mind just um, telling us about a couple of those. There was one when you were very small um, where you saw a green elf. Um, yeah, you know, this is, I, I mean, I'm lying in my crib. I was not into paranormal experiences, psychology, uh, ufology. I was not into any of that stuff. But I do have this memory of being a, a toddler in a crib. I mean, I what was I three years old, four years old, not fourteen or fifteen, but yeah. Uh, and I and I did see what appeared to me uh, to be an elf-like creature come through the Venetian blinds on the window of my bedroom and just disappear into my toy closet. Uh, but here's the interesting thing: as I recall that memory, and it's still vivid in my mind, but I cannot say that it hasn't changed over the years but yeah. it does not in my memory appear to be uh what people how people have depicted the so-called gray aliens it as i remember it i remember it as an elf and not so much a gray alien but who knows maybe uh something like that is what gets some people on the road to to the strange the road uh, the road to strange yeah and uh, uh i really did involve myself from i would say around the age of uh probably 15 through uh the years of the so-called modern era of ufology or the study of flying saucers uh, uh involving myself with that subject so i think this very likely uh connection between that uh, experience that night in the crib, uh, very possibly. Yeah. And because um, I, I, I have quite a few questions about that subject. Sure. We'll come back to that Absolutely. later. Um, yeah. The other one, um, which I just loved this story because of how bizarre it was, um, the one about the band called Fumple Funker. In Ireland. Oh, <laughs> oh that's, that's a hilarious. It's, it's a funny story. It took place. Uh, I uh, had a friend of mine when I lived in Ashland, Oregon, Southern Oregon, uh, who was uh, helping me with my website. And he was developing my website. And one day uh, there were some things that I was couldn't wait to have finished and done. And this, my friend's name was Dan. And Dan comes to me and says, I'm going to England. I'm going to England and Ireland for six weeks or whatever it is. I, I, I have to stop working on your website. I said, no, 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 no. You have to finish a couple of things, at least before you go. So he did. He finished them and all that. So 
so here he was off to uh, it's England in the West. Uh, I'm just trying to, uh, my mind's a blank for a second, yeah, thinking of the I... famous festival that takes place Glastonbury. in the West. Yeah. Glastonbury. Yes, Glastonbury. Yeah. A fantastic festival. I'm sure you've been to them. Yes, I have. And a really good friend of mine from England, George Wingfield, who you may have heard his name. He's a yeah. writer in the UFO fields, and we've been good friends for years and years. So I knew that George was going to be lecturing at Glastonbury. So I said, George, George, do me a favor. Call out Dan Shaw in your audience when you give your lecture <laughs> and say, is there a Dan Shaw in the audience? And uh, <laughs> Dan meekly raises his hand. Yes, 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 I, I'm Dan Shaw. What? What, what, what? Well, Homeland Security in America has called to say you left your lights on in your car parked at the airport or whatever. It was just a joke. <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, George, take Dan out for a drink on me and you'll have a good conversation with him. And, and they did that. All right. So now, uh, actually, it was... Uh, I don't remember if it was quite before or after, but Dan is now in Dublin. And he now says to me in an email, I had enough of you making me work on your website before I left for my trip. Enough of you, but to see your face on a poster in a window in Dublin, it was too much. It was just too much. I said, how could you possibly see my face in Dublin? He says, you were on a poster. This band put your picture on their poster, Humplefunker. <laughs> of course, Humplefunker, like so goes uh, a number of bands, they're only temporary. And for one reason or another, Humplefunker is no longer. <laughs> I tried but, to look uh, them up. <laughs> but they said, I contacted them. They said, oh, we just needed to borrow a picture of a cowboy. Well, I was not a cowboy. I was an Indiana Jones lookalike, <laughs> not a cowboy. Anyway, so that's just a funny synchronicity story. Uh, you know, it has no great profound meaning, but when you've had lots of them like I have, uh, you have to stop and think and take a look at this. What can I learn? What can I glean from this? What purpose, of, if any, do synchronicities have? I mean, you yeah. you explore things. It leads you to explore, prods yeah. you to explore. I mean, what are the chances of someone that you know seeing that poster? I mean, they must be oh. massive, you know, tiny. I mean, it's crazy. But I have lot. I've had lots of things like that, more than my share, uh, and and I have collected in my couple thousand interviews many many. Interesting and equivalently interesting and bizarre and wondrous synchronicities by told to me by other people. So I'm not monopolizing in any way whatsoever uh, the yeah. occurrence of synchronicities. It seems to be a regular part of human existence, uh, however you want to look at it and treat it. Yeah, I think I'm going to. I think it just seems a good time to to jump ahead and come on to my synchronicities question, which is um, 
Many of the people that you include in your books are multiple or repeat experiences of, of the paranormal. Um, and a lot of them um, have synchronicities. What what makes a coincidence a synchronicity? And what what do you think makes a synchronicity paranormal? Oh, those are the questions of the moment. Uh, uh, you know, look, I can speculate a little bit about it. Yeah. I wish I could give you a clear-cut, definitive answer. But what I like to uh, premise a lot of my responses to different questions that people have asked me is as follows. Uh, in our ways of looking at the universe... And some of this sort of thing I hear from the various interesting TikToks of famous scientists who have suddenly learned, why don't I go onto a TikTok and, and tell people all the kinds of interesting ideas I'm working on? So Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Cox, uh, Stephen Hawking did for a while, uh, Michio Kaku, just to name a few are on there talking about all kinds of really fascinating things and, and very meaningful and interesting. Well, I'm of the opinion that I don't think we're that much further beyond thinking of the universe in terms of earth, air, fire, and water. And, and I'm being a little facetious. I'm just meaning to say that a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, we're going to have live very likely so many more conceptual ways to think of about, think of the universe about. So we only can think in terms of a fraction of things. So think of us as kind of goldfish swimming around in bowls and we have only a few knowledge of a few parameters of the universe around us and how to think about them. So, for example, the question comes up, well, what are UFOs? Are they space aliens running these things? Are they from different dimensions? Well, okay. Aliens, living, functioning beings in other worlds, well, there's your earth or air or fire or water or other dimensions. How many dimensions are there? If there are different dimensions, we think there are, in fact. So you get the point I'm making. We, we only have gotten so far in our mental conceptualizations of how the universe works, how it's put together, how it's constructed. So we're not asking perhaps the right questions because we don't have the framework, the worldview to formulate questions that may give us more meaningful answers. And so when you talk about synchronicities and coincidences, well, of course, these are cute. They're cute, but what kind of theoretical framework does any human scientist or thinker on planet Earth have in order to say where does where do occurrences that seem to be happening beyond the possibility of just chance or accidents 
where does that fit in the whole scheme of things of how we're going to look at the universe a million years from now? So, so I'd be cute and facetious and laugh that these coincidences and synchronicities, which seem to be coincidences that have some meaning beyond chance. I can't go a whole lot farther than that. Mm -hmm. uh, other than to say, well, they seem to be timed or they happen in a certain way that if nothing else, there's a message that comes from that. Wake up, pay attention. Yeah. This is something that's probably a lot more important to you than you think, or than you can maybe comprehend. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm at on this. I don't have a definitive answer. But when you experience some something that has like five interrelated parts, each and every one of them happening by chance, but together... And maybe we'll talk about that story a little bit later. Uh, what what can you think? What can you possibly think if if you are basically operating on the framework? I know a little bit about earth, air, fire, and water, but I need to know a lot more in order to really make more sense, maybe sufficient sense of what the universe is about. Yeah. I mean, we're not as evolved as we like to think we are, are we, really? No, um, maybe not. <laughs> oh, it's sad, but, but we're, you know, we're moving along. Yeah. Don't you we, think? Paradigm yeah. shifts. Aren't those fun? Paradigm shifts. That is giving the goldfish us, oh, another framework, something more to add to the framework that supports our worldview. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, paradigm shift. Well, it might be. I, I like to think maybe um, that everybody will be, we won't be here to be proved wrong because it will be too far in the future, but um, that the, the universe is almost like a, a living, breathing body that, well, uh, that, knows, that knows what's going on everywhere and organizes these things. Um, you know, I, often I, I look at leaves blowing in the wind, you know, this little leaf. And I and I wonder and I think like we've all thought, gee, is there some consciousness consciousness that really is aware of each and every single atom, you know? I'd like what to it's think doing. so. I I'd like to think so, but it's not yeah. me. <laughs> and that it went. Oh, Michael Bryan is picture is going to be in Dublin, and his friend is going to go there, um, and then. And yeah, organize and see it and think I did it on purpose. Exactly, you did this. You <laughs> had to have done this. <laughs> and he still remains a good friend to this day. Oh, so, he wasn't really upset. No, I think it's nice to wind your friends up every now and then. <laughs> um, so I was going to ask you actually, um, and. I'm sorry if this is quite long, but stay with me. So okay. you re you record many strange personal experiences in your Road to Strange series. Most people would take no notice of them, some of them, because they're quite small, or think they were down to coincidence or brush it off. Um, you're one of the only people that I've met who I've found that even the smallest experiences 
are important and worthy of noting them down. Why, why did you start to note them all down? I have a list on my phone of every single strange <laughs> experience that I've had, um, but I don't know anybody else who does that. What, why was it important for you to do that? I think part of it is uh, fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is how do you deal with something that is so strange, so odd, so out of the ordinary? What will other people think of me? Or am I crazy? Am I nuts or not? You know, I have, I'm not saying that I necessarily have any greater capability of drawing people out. But, you know, when you've interviewed a couple thousand people, I have at least been able to make people comfortable enough that they'll talk about some of these things that they won't tell other people. So I've had these very intelligent people who are very, to some extent, self-conscious of how they think other people will see them, you know, uh, finally admit to me that they've had some of these experiences and they've described these experiences. And I think I've probably, I like to think that I have been able to help them feel more comfortable about at least sharing some of this stuff with me so I can say to them, you know, you're you're having some experiences like many of us that we don't understand. And that can be fearful and scary and uncomfortable. And it could make us feel like we're losing our minds. I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities and they don't want other people to think badly of them. Uh, but they do, they do realize that yes, yes, I've had this very unusual thing and it's scary to talk about it, but maybe in some instances it may be helpful to talk about it and bring it out and explore that it's not the end of the world because you've had something happen to you that you can't understand or contemplate at all. So I think there's some value in it, uh, but I think some of it is motivated by the fear of the unknown, the fear of how I will be perceived by others and wondering myself, am I nuts having some experience like this? Yeah. And also I think I worry about forgetting them because I feel like in somewhere there are very small pieces of a jigsaw that I hope maybe to be able to put together one day. And I I want to remember them um, and give them sort of validation as individual experiences. So yeah. do you feel like the people you talked to, it felt like it was cathartic to speak about their experiences? Oh, definitely. I think these interviews that I've had with people, I mean, they were so forthcoming with these experiences. And I'm thinking, my God, it's like they turned the faucet on. And uh, here comes out uh, all these different sorts of things. And uh, they, interestingly own these experiences a lot of people that i've interviewed in other words they're sharing them they believe that these happen uh a lot of it seemed very credible that it could very well have happened exactly as they're saying it i mean i've had this is the interesting thing i look back at myself uh, okay so i'm trained as a social scientist quote unquote you know and you live by the 
science of the day, the rules of evidence and blah, 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 which I respect. But I also, through interviewing many, many people and through having experiences myself that I have not been afraid to explore to some extent, I, I, I'm richer for it. I think people feel they uh, have gained personally by coming to terms and talking about uh, their experiences, not necessarily absolutely convinced that they're totally real and true. I mean, we all have some doubts about these things that happen to us, but I think it is cathartic. I think it is uh, helpful. Uh, but on the other hand, I've talked to people who say to me one story of, I'll, I'll give this incident because this is very interesting. Uh, this was just a couple who had gone to a, a famous hot springs in California. They had dinner at a nearby restaurant. And then they went to the hot springs. They sat down on a concrete bench or whatever it was to put their feet in. And uh, then they suddenly began to see this huge bright light over them, over this hot tub area. They didn't have any idea what it was. They couldn't explain it. And suddenly the light was gone and it was much later in the evening and they found themselves sitting on the opposite side of the hot tub than where they were to begin with. Yeah. So I suggested to the woman who told me the story because she had other experiences as well. I, I said, do you think that this uh, could have been some kind of interaction you may have had with some other intelligence? of some sort and she said uh, yeah yeah uh, very much possible and i said would you want to possibly explore some of this through hypnosis through somebody that specializes in this kind of thing oh no no i don't want to go to that i don't want to do that so they suspect they really feel something's happened to them but they don't always want to go further with it yeah yeah that's really interesting. Um, so there's there's one thing that um, I wanted to ask you, and it's just really random. And I think probably now is a very good time. Um, and you may have had no sort of uh, sort of interest or knowledge in this person, but just out of interest, did you ever have anything to do with or meet Dr. John Mack? Yes. You did? Yes. Yes, I did. I, I did uh, wonder. I knew him on a personal name basis. Not that I was close friends, but... Yeah. Uh, Kate, uh, to, to bring the audience up to speed a little bit, Dr. John Mack was a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, probably the top tier of prestigious American universities. And uh, he was very much involved with the psychiatric clinic at Harvard at the time, I guess. And he, like two others, people that I knew on a first name basis, Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University. And I had actually gotten two degrees at Temple University in Philadelphia, although I didn't know him at the time. I did a BA and a master's degree in psychology at Temple University in Philadelphia. And he was a professor of history. I got to know him later. And then uh, 
Bud Hopkins, uh, which I think is the father of UFO abduction research. Yeah. He was an artist in New York City with some acclaim for his art, a nice guy. And he had a UFO experience, I think, somewhere on Cape Cod. I don't remember the, the, the exact details. And he wound up being so enthralled in the subject matter that he must have done hypnosis with at least, I'm thinking, about 1,500 people. Wow. And John Mack also did hypnosis with many, many people. And his... One of the comments that he made, which was very interesting, he says, I found these stories that people were telling me through the hypnosis that they're all very, very similar. I just don't think all these people were making all this stuff up or getting it all from one another and making it up. Then Harvard uh, could not stomach the idea that one of his prominent professors and people involved in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School, wherever it was, could buy into this whole idea of alien UFO abductions. But uh, he was true to his own self. Uh, he drew these conclusions himself. Uh, he followed his research where it took him and he wasn't afraid to say i know how horrible this all sounds and how strange and bizarre but these people are not making up all all these people are not making up these stories yeah. and so uh, that's how i got to know john mack i wrote a little letter in his support not that i was anyone in particular but i wrote a letter and asked did many many people well, he had a fairly well-known attorney in America who actually did quite a bit of work, I understand, with the Vatican. He was very sharp, and he defended John Mack, and it wound up that Harvard could not get rid of him. Mm -hmm. And he, true to the, the, the purposes of tenure, that you are free to follow your intellectual pursuits, be it, albeit crazy to some people, but not to others. And uh, so that's the story of John Mack. And uh, I heard lots of interesting anecdotes and stories from Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs about the research that they were doing. And someday, hundreds of years from now, these names are going to probably come up as people who weren't afraid to delve into something that would make them possibly look ridiculous and yeah. silly. But these were bright, motivated, dedicated people who thought there was something to what they were studying. Yeah, I think I, I think that one day there are going to be um, a lot of people are going to have to heavily backtrack on things they say because um, it, it really it upsets me that um, certain scientists and people um, who try to um, stamp on people, you know, such as yourself and John Mack and say, this isn't what we do, it's ridiculous. One day, I think they're all going to be proved to be ridiculous. Um, well, um, it could be. It because could of very their, well be. Yeah, their lack of sight, their lack of open-mindedness, which is surely what this is all about. Um, 
Anyway, that's just my mini round. Great craziness. Craziness <laughs> is not limited to these weird subjects by any means. If you're looking at American politics at the moment, oh, I which can't is bet not to. fun. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Right. I do. I do. It's very worrying. Um, right. So I've got. Um, oh, I don't know what order to ask these in, really. Um, let's start with this one. So. And this is another big question, but I'm sure you'll just give me your take on it. What do you think UFOs and, and aliens, that, which just seems a, a, a kind of a ridiculously simple word, um, what do you think they are? What's your take on them? Have you got um, a theory or are you just... Well, you know, I, I've uh, been involved with this stuff well over 50 years. And I've read many books. I've interviewed many people. I've gone to many conferences. And I feel like I have been true to myself, followed my studies of all this. And uh, based on that, again, that whole framework of looking at the universe in terms of earth, air, fire, and water, not having a whole lot of parameters to really have good answers. I mean, I think it uh, is absurdly true that there are probably all sorts of life forms and probably combinations of life forms and mechanical forms created by other life forms. Uh, people think of the universe as consciousness uh again consciousness let's add that to earth air fire and water call something consciousness i mean don't know exactly what it is <clears throat> i i think you're left with all possibilities i probably don't know enough how to define the differences but i would say i mean uh if if time travel is a possibility uh then there's probably some of that uh, there's, I believe there's certainly other evolved living creatures similar or different to us or from us. Uh, we do know that time appears to be a dimension, a way of defining the universe. So why could there not be more dimensions? I think one of the most fascinating uh, ways that one could uh, use one's time and think about this is to look at the series of uh, the Skinwalker, the Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. You know, they've had teams of scientists, teams of intelligent people looking at things, teams of government people, yeah. all looking at the strange, bizarre goings-on at this area of uh, Utah, yeah, called uh, the search, the series is search for the Skinwalker. Probably be yeah. on for another year. Yeah, and uh, you know they they brought some of the best scientific methods and uh, and really good thinkers into this, and it's not sufficient at this point. The skill levels, the knowledge levels the understanding of the paradigm levels, but it's about the best that we can muster of people 
looking at this and they all throw their hands up in amazement and some in disgust at some of the things that have happened. But I think uh, it's just a great living example of how we uh, barely evolved living creatures uh, are able to broach some of these subjects. And some of it's pretty scary and some of it is very interesting. So that's how I look at it. Uh, I think uh, we may have a combination of presences here from actual aliens and crafts that they have learned to build from their degree of knowledge of science yeah. uh, and, 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 and beings probably uh, that have learned how to go between dimensions, if you can say that. So I th think there's yeah. probably quite a bit of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are just trying to turn blind eyes to it because, again, fear is a major part of it, uh, or the incapacity to try to look beyond what you think, see, feel, and do yeah. as earthlings. Yeah. I think, I think fear is probably a large amount um, to do with it because it is it's a terrifying thought because if, if the average person sort of opened their mind and said, yes, this is a possibility, their world falls apart. They can't yes. cope. And we can see how the world can so easily fall apart just, just talking about politics and governments and wars i mean it's just yeah. we're not that far along and uh, we're just this little tiny teeny teeny little piece of dust out in the universe i mean i don't know if anyone or anything cares about us i just hope we don't just wipe ourselves out yeah so do you think that the um the governments are trying to protect the average person by not telling them things or do you think it's just that they think we're not ready for it? Or do you think that they don't think it's any of our business because we're not important enough? Or what do you think? Well, Why I think it's uh, all of the above. But uh, I, I also think uh, that some of this stuff is probably understood a little bit more than we think. And uh, if you follow the history of the modern era of ufology uh you cannot help but think that not necessarily every government or all politicians necessarily have our total best interests at heart you yeah. know there's selfishness and there's that but there is also if you'll remember we had this famous brookings institution in america study of how do people really handle things like the discovery that we're not alone and maybe interaction with uh, alien visitors. How, how are we going to deal with that? And then I think the militaries uh, want to keep a lot of the secret and uh, hopefully have a, a military advantage in order to survive. Uh, you yeah. know, there's, there's a lot going on. I mean, let's face it. Uh, we're going to have to look back uh, on the present era and earlier at humanity and really try to understand just what 
are the implications in terms of what's really going on in the universe? What's the implications for us in um, existing and surviving and evolving? Uh, it's no question that the first uh, presentation of an alien uh, that anybody on Earth can accept as real isn't going to be just extremely terrifying in terms of where we've come from and where we're headed. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if it's just wonderful? And, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking was really cautioning us, hey, hey, don't let them know we're here. You know, but I think we're a little bit too far gone for that. Yeah. Yeah, because I was wondering if you think about, because I was thinking if you if you showed somebody um, an alien on television stood next to the president, it, most people still wouldn't believe it because, as you've <laughs> mentioned in your book, you know, people only actually believe what their own experience is. Um, so do you think there's a possibility that we as a race, by all these thousands of people having experiences, are we being prepared or desensitized to the possibility of aliens existing one by one, bit by bit, until everybody's had an experience and then we're ready to see and believe whatever it is? Just well, I think I think you raised a really good question. And, and I've also thought and pondered on it because I had also done a uh, master's degree in... Uh, business administration at the University of Hawaii so I could make myself a little more useful as a professor, you know, teaching courses and whatnot. And, yeah. and I, I began to think, um, you know, oh, I think I might have lost my train of thought for a second. Hang on. It was just, yeah. Oh, it'll, whether, come back. it'll come back yeah. to me. Are we being prepared um, for aliens existing. Oh, okay, here, here, yeah, here's yeah. the thought. The thought I had is, you know, there's a, a lot of ways that human beings have learned to influence and manipulate people through politics and government and marketing and commerce. You know, there's lots of ways uh, to spread opinions and beliefs you know, now we're talking about AI somehow is going to be very clever and it's going to manipulate the way we see the universe. And, you know, there's all kinds of fears of this. But sometimes I think, I wonder, you know, if there is, let's say, uh, something of an alien presence on planet Earth, maybe living in the oceans, who knows exactly where and how they function and move and operate and all that. Uh, would they not have some notion of how they might present themselves to a planet? Yeah. You know, because suddenly we have, for example, Rendlesham Forest, mm -hmm. England's Roswell, the Roswell event that took place in the United States. Yeah. Uh, UFOs flying over Washington, D.C. in 1952. Uh, UFOs flying over stadiums, over schools, school children yeah. in Africa. Uh, the Ariel School. John Mack went to research that. Do they have some idea 
of how to seed concepts through the masses to help the masses come to terms with it better? Do they have, have they mastered that kind of social science of influence of thinking sentient beings like earth people uh, in a way that gradually builds up awareness over time and space? Do they or do they not? Or maybe they don't care. Or maybe uh, you see what I'm getting at. There yeah. might be more subtle ways of influencing masses to be able to accommodate uh, strangers from beyond, but maybe in a way that does not necessarily scares us, but a way that may foster paradigm shift in a way that we can accept it. Yeah. Or maybe they couldn't care less if we did or we didn't. And maybe there's more than one group that's here and maybe they have different approaches yeah. all very good questions and worth pondering and i you know we've had all kinds of discussions sitting at eureka springs arkansas in the middle of the night all talking at the eureka springs ufo conferences of which i attended 20 wow i'd love to go there oh it's so much fun they're great conferences and we i mean i have met some of the most famous people in ufology going to that conference and we had a little uh uh suite of of bedrooms and living rooms that we called uh the um uh, it was named after a beer in texas uh the lone <laughs> star bar and the lone star bar had people like linda howe and all kinds of other friends involved in these fields sitting up to the wee hours of the night drinking beer and wine and talking about all the stuff ad nauseum till daybreak yeah well this imagine. is how the world's problems are solved this is what einstein used to do this is what shake of used to do you know whether it's a coffee shop or a, a you know, you know a each book. and every one of us each and every one of us with whatever our degree of experience or knowledge of ufos or the paranormal has a part in these conversations and it's just great how heads of people met together and talked in open and free atmospheres about all these exciting interesting and sometimes scary things things yeah Oh, I'd love to be there. I hope I can go one day. <laughs> it still amazing. seems to have continued, you know, over yeah. the decades. It still goes on. Still goes on, yeah. And, and Eureka Springs is a fascinating place to visit. It's just a wonderful place to go. And there's yeah. other conferences. And <laughs> yeah. MUFON well, conferences coming up in Texas this year. And, oh, you know what? They're going to talk about uh, the degrees of... Uh, disclosure that's taken place uh in the government bodies there people will be talking about what we've learned and where that's at and what's yeah. happening with all that that's that's a i would love to be able to go to that i don't know if i will be able to or not but i think that's going to be interesting the first symposium that's taken place after the so-called more opening up and disclosure that seems to be taking place yeah 
what do you what do you think about and it's, it's fine if if I ask you a question you say I'm not comfortable talking about that person or whatever it's fine but what do you think about uh, the work of Louis Alexander? Well, you know, I, I I can't really be sure of any of these people. Yeah. Uh, I like to use a concept, this very simple concept that came out of ufologies, one of ufologies, all time great people, Stanton Friedman. And Stan came up with the concept of the gray basket. The gray basket, it's what's in between the circular file, which is our American word for trash can, yeah. throwing things away. <laughs> and uh, uh, that would be object nonsense. The, the gray basket, which is in the middle, and then the other basket... Uh, the safe that locks up all the discovered secrets, truths. Yeah. And then things move constantly in and out of the gray basket because we don't know quite where to put it, yeah. but we don't have to totally discard it. So Roswell, what happened at Roswell is a good example. So much of that is sitting in the gray basket. Uh, Louis Elizondo, to me, is... Uh, moves into the gray basket, out of the gray basket. Depending on what we're hearing, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Uh, so half of everything I've heard in ufology and, and the paranormal over my lifetime moves in and out of the gray basket. Another great example is Bob Lazar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bob Lazar moves into and out of the gray basket. I remember him on... Seth Rogen's program, sitting there with his arms folded, saying something to the extent of, well, what do you think of me now? Because he's been in there right from the get-go, talking about all this stuff and has not been totally trashed, and neither has been he been totally accepted on all sides, but they're very credible, very good researchers and very good journalists who lean in the direction that they think, well, maybe he's really telling the truth. Maybe he's on to something. Mm -hmm. I have my own slight pet peeve. And I'll mention this because I don't know whether anyone will agree with me or not. But at one time, I was a nerdy, geeky, high school kind of science and math person. And... Uh, and I remember the table of the periodic chart of the elements. Yeah. You know, and you can say, till the cows come home, to use that expression, that uh, there is an element 115, and that's it. That's what's fueling these spaceships. But I say to you, okay, I think we're talking about 115, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was not that far up the periodic elements in terms of the numbers of what a newly discovered or formed elements, yeah. uh, you know, could be. So you could say, yeah, there's going to be an element 101 coming after element 100. And you could say element 115 is the fuel. Yes, that's it. That's the element. That's what's fueling 
these spaceships. But yeah. hey, hey, one fifteen is not so far up the chain that something could come in be called element one fifteen. Yeah. So I don't know. It's in the gray basket for me. Yeah. And things move in and out of people's different gray baskets. Yeah. It's a very big basket. <laughs> it sure is, isn't it? <laughs> you could say a basket of bullshot. <laughs> yeah. You've torn a phrase. Um, dare I ask which basket David Icke's in? Uh, who? David Icke. Do you remember? Okay. Do you know no, David no, no, Icke. No. Oh, you must look spell, him up. Spell, spell that. Spell the um, word I-K-E. You might pronounce oh, it differently. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, we just have slightly different pronunciations. Oh, right, okay. Um, you know, I, I don't know quite what to think of him. I've listened to some things, and some things are interesting and could be. I, I would say he's probably in my gray basket. Um, I know there's a lot of people that... Uh, follow and accept a lot of things that I would not necessarily. But here's the difference. I don't just discard stuff and throw it away. I let the scales balance in my own way of thinking. And and see, there was a time in MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, when that first began, that Walt Andrus, the founder and former uh, who formed that, uh, would not tolerate the idea, would not allow quote unquote discussions of alien abductions it was spaceships ufos were all nuts and bolts that's how we're going to look at it yeah uh, but the paradigm shift in ufology took place and now abduction experiences the study of alleged ufo abductions is now very much mainstream yeah. So it's moved out of the gray basket for a lot of people. And and so has the paradigm of ufology shifted to some extent. So that's interesting that we looking and seeing and watching how the study of the subject of UFOs has now migrated to UAPs in some circles. Uh, it was originally unidentified um flying uh, aerial aerial phenomena oh yeah, yeah. Is now it's morphed to unidentified anomalous phenomena, phenomena yeah. to allow for example objects that seem to go in and out of the seas mm -hmm. you know so that's another paradigm shift that's slowly and subtly taken place i'm friends with i think the person who originated the uap uh, term, uh, but he meant aerial at the time, and now it's morphed a little beyond to uh, anomalous. And yeah. he lives on one of the neighbor islands off of Seattle, as I do. Oh. We're friends and we're in touch. Fantastic. Um, now, I just wanted to go back to um, Skinwalker Ranch, actually, because I am an avid watcher of the um, Skinwalker Ranch program. I find it so fascinating. Um, and I love the fact that it, as it should do, it's ended up with more questions than answers. Um, and I, in in connection with um, Skinwalker Ranch, there's another ranch um, only a few hundred miles away called 
Bradshaw Ranch. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I've read the book for of the uh, the man who wrote about Bradshaw Ranch, and the things that he says happen there are phenomenal, including having sword fights with grey aliens and, um, you know, ghosts. And it, it was reading his book actually a few years ago that made me think about maybe the idea that everything's connected because I, I've been on my own personal journey since I started this podcast because I started out just interested in um, the idea of ghosts being the spirits of dead people. And boy, have I come a long way since then. And <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> from talking to people, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, and in my head, I had everything in neat little boxes um, and now my box is all smushed together. Um, and the idea that everything's connected, it just seems to make so much more sense. Do you do you think that there's a possibility that ghosts, spirits, UFOs, Bigfoot, cryptids, everything's all part of the same kind of melting pot? Well, it's as if to say you know are we able ever going to be able to grasp the entirety of all there is i mean we're only privileged to the parts of it that we as the goldfish managed to scramble together but i mean uh one of my favorite uh, scientists uh to listen to the tiktoks which i rarely do but is Brian Cox, C-O-X. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he was a musician in a pa past life. And I find him fascinating to listen to because uh, he he's, seems very open-minded to uh, the expansiveness of everything. And yet, you know, to the notion, I, I don't know if he directly says this, but I in, intimate that he does. Uh you know, maybe we're only going to understand a part of it, uh, but it, it's just too enormous that maybe uh, I can't see somebody going up to the blackboard writing equations no. <laughs> that's going to really encompass everything. But, you know, in the end, and then it may all come and go. <laughs> no, so, uh, it's simply out of reach uh, quite beyond what I think possibly we may ever be able to grasp. But ain't it exciting it at least to be privy to something of this? Yeah. Uh, and can we hope to grasp it all? I'm not very optimistic. But, yeah. uh, you know, ain't it exciting that we've, uh, notwithstanding some of the horrible things about life and living, uh, to at least uh, sample and be a part of all this. Uh, uh, I mean, there's probably no greater gift other than to be able to live forever, I suppose. I, anyway. Well, as long to as... Each yeah. our, to each <laughs> his or her own, right? <laughs> yeah. we, all have, we all need to come to terms with it. Uh, maybe it's very disappointing to people to be out there thinking, uh, gee, you mean we might not have really grasped this? Uh, I mean, that's a real, uh, according to Brian Cox, that's a very realistic possibility that mm -hmm. it's simply going to be beyond what we could ever hope to uh, 
understand and appreciate can only maybe just a sample of it yeah and i think it's also frustrating that um i mean because because i one of my favorite pastimes and i don't get enough time to do it is to just sit and think about all these things um but the idea that maybe when we when our body dies and we're all sort of people who believe that that may not be the end are hoping for some answers when they get to wherever else they're going might be sorely disappointed and they might never ever find the answers to these questions which is a very frustrating thought <laughs> well it is and it would be sad to face eternity with the idea that uh, geez maybe uh you know but look hey face it grow up that may be you, you know it may be what is and uh, you can either try to come to terms with that or not it's up to you uh we're all going to have a takeaway from all this yeah uh but it is uh i mean look it's fascinating yeah. what can we say we're all of us you and i and all the people we know are so wrapped up in these subjects find it fascinating what is the fascination what is the fascination well that very nicely brings me on to my next question so i'm i'm bringing it all in now back down to people um so do you in all of your um chatting to thousands and thousands of people about their experiences is there a particular sort of person do you feel who either experiences paranormal phenomena or seeks out paranormal phenomena such as investigators like me is there a certain type of person or could it just be anybody do you think that, that that's a really good question um let me think about that for a second well i think uh those of us who uh are fascinated and involved with these subjects feel at least to our own way of thinking and being that we have sampled some things out of our own curiosity and or out of our own lives uh the sense of exploration this desire to explore this desire for novelty the desire to think and grow and develop i think you remember the Abraham Maslow hierarchy of human needs, the pyramid that oh, we yes, all yeah, had yeah. beginning psychology. You know, we're all wrapped up in safety and survival and staying alive. Yeah. And moving up to, gee, maybe, maybe I can be something greater than myself to strive to be all that we can be and to seek love and companionship with other people and understanding and, and achievement seems to be one of the highest things, the pinnacle, you know, of needs. I think, uh, I think by being alive, uh, we've been programmed to seek the pinnacle, you know, to seek the ultimate truths. And uh, in this seeking out, I feel like I should put it on an Indian accent. In this quest to seek out the ultimate knowledge and to become all that we can be and achieve 
because uh, it's so rewarding. It's so positive. Uh, that, you know, we're all, our intellects are all taking a, taking us all along these paths. I call it The Road to Strange. Yeah. was my series of books. That uh, the end of all that is who knows uh, to maybe reach these various states that all these ancient religions or some of them profess to reach a state of nirvana. Maybe, uh, maybe each of us, each living, thinking little creature and being uh, does get to uh, become and feel as if one has become part of this ultimate state of being. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the grandest gift. Maybe that's the grandest gift of, of all is to achieve and evolve towards a whole, towards grasping of a whole. I mean, I can't begin to try to define what that is, but I think we all have some sort of sense of this greatness uh, to which we are trying to evolve to up this yeah. needs hierarchy, hierarchy. That uh, who are we to say? Uh, it would seem to be a shame to be such a total, complete waste that after all of this, that suddenly the universe will just blink out into nothingness. I mean, it's beyond yeah. me. I don't know. Well, I'm just so grateful that that well for myself that I'm the sort of person that looks out to these things there are so many people in the world that seem to just look inwards um and they're almost scared to look beyond their normal everyday yeah. lives um and i think that's such a shame and some people are so intrinsically stubborn and they won't even contemplate anything else and i just think how can you be like that i just don't understand how people can you be can like be a that. slug a slug crawling on the ground and be maybe be slug happy you know, maybe, uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> uh, in it's your loss. It's <laughs> your loss potentially. Uh, not if you don't strive to be more than just the slug crawling along the ground. I mean, you know, we've all seen and experienced the evolution to to some extent. We think it's evolving to some uh, greater end, hopefully. Uh, but but in the end, it may not necessarily be so uh yeah so i've got one last sort of big question okay. and then i'm just going to okay. ask you um about a couple of your experiences at the end um okay. now this is um everybody that i've interviewed as part of my podcast and as as just as uh people every day that i meet i'm i'm a primary school teacher and um you know people who i work with at school are very reluctant until I start pressing them to talk about paranormal experiences or ghostly experiences. And I find it, it's my sort of pet mission that everybody I meet, wherever I can, I'll ask them if they've had any sort of experience. And um, right, yeah. um, so I feel like I'm, I, I had an experience when I was um, a small child and I feel this led me on the path to do what I'm doing now for my hobby. And I'd love one day for it to become my full-time um occupation and um i was just wondering if you think that um our early experiences of 
paranormal types, including UFOs and everything like that, do you think they're pur purposefully sort of shown to us or given to us in order to create a path for us to follow in our life? Uh, maybe a path which feels like it's our choice based on our experience, but maybe it's a predestined choice because we've been shown this thing on purpose in order to make us go in that direction. I just wondered if you ever thought yeah. about that. No, I've thought about that too. And uh, I would think that probably so. I think uh, uh, maybe in ways we don't fully understand, maybe in connection with the evolution of us into the future, if people from the future can influence their development through the past, I mean, conceivably, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it's, it's possible. Uh, but I, I certainly feel that synchronicities in, in particular uh, or more meaningful interpretations of apparent random chancing or random chances is playful and fun and yeah. humorous. I've rarely, rarely heard of a, a really negative synchronicity. It's always positive and people laugh and people are feeling a sense of wonderment and if there is any conscious message attached to it meaningful purposeful message it seems to be over and over again hey pay attention things are more related interrelated with one another then maybe merely meets the eye mm -hmm. that what you think is just purely chance may be not chance in some larger purposeful way the universe works. I think synchronicities teach me that the universe does not strictly operate in a linear fashion, A to B to C to D to E, that there may be a variety of paths to understanding and relating look we have these things i don't think it's a totally random nonsense thing that goes on it just seems to be very convincing to people to me personally yeah. with my experiences that maybe what you say is correct maybe there are these could be intentional ways of supporting or furthering our evolution in ways that we don't know yeah. could be or maybe it's accidental or maybe it's just part of something that pops up like the other things in the universe and maybe. what effect it has and where that goes to is anybody's good guess yeah sometimes i feel like carrots are being dangled in front of me for me to follow <laughs> i think so i when I've had compound synchronicities, I I laugh and I think, oh my God, uh, this is just amazing. You yeah. Know? And, and, and it buoys me up. It keeps, yeah. keeps me interested. If that has meaning or not, you know, I'm not sure in the bigger scheme of things, but that's how I operate. That's my gray basket. Yeah. In and out of the gray basket. Exactly. Uh, now, just to finish off, I want to ask you just about um, 
one or two of your um, stories in your book. One is you named the Ashland connection where you had a lot of synchronicities happening to do with Ashland. Could you yeah. tell us about that? Yes, I will. Uh, I just want to point out these uh, two gigantic books <laughs> that I have piled into. They are very all big. these All these individual little stories, like over 500 pages each. Yeah. Compared to these two little skinny books that were jointly written by me and Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Yeah, Rosemary knew that I she was she's no longer with us. Rosemary was an all-term, all-time great person. And she knew that I collected so many stories. And she says, Michael, let's write some books together. And we did the first two. And there was nobody like Rosemary. I think she was the single best informed person that I have ever met on the role of the paranormal. So we wrote these books. And the Ashland Connection uh, is in one of them. And basically, uh, very simply and tersely put, what happened to me uh, is that I had a like a five-part synchronicity. And I'll, I'll summarize it really quickly. I did a round trip from Ashland, Oregon, where I was living, to New York City to a book fair at the end of May of one year, and then I would return at the beginning of June. And on the way, I would visit my sister in Pennsylvania and take a train up to New York City for the weekend and make the full circle back. And I had a book table to show all the various things I've been writing and producing uh, at the book fair in New York, Book Expo America. All right, so I get on the plane in Oregon, a United Airlines flight, and I grab the Hemisphere magazine, uh, put it in my attache case, didn't even open up the May issue, and I thought, oh, I've written all these travel guides, 14 travel guides to sightseeing in cities around the world by yeah. public transportation, including the London Underground was one of them. And uh, so... Uh, here I was thinking, why don't I write to United Airlines and see if they might do a review of my travel guides because yeah. it's travel-related transportation. So I go to Philly, I see my sister, get on the train to go to New York, now to the book fair, and I pass a town, the sign says Rahway, New Jersey on it. And I think to myself, I knew somebody who was from Rahway, New Jersey. <laughs> you know how you do that? Yeah. You pass a place and... And the person that I knew who was from Rahway, New Jersey, who told me that, it was 42 years earlier when I was a student of chemical engineering in Carnegie Mellon University, which was an engineering school. Okay, he was from Rahway, New Jersey. Silly, stupid. I go to the book fair. I get on the plane. I am now coming back to Oregon. I grabbed the June new issue of Hemisphere Magazine, put it in my attache case, get to Philadelphia, uh, to Ashland, Oregon, go into the kitchen where I have mail stacked up on the desk, see a big white envelope, Hemisphere's Magazine. Oh, what's that? Open it up. It's the June issue, which I didn't even look at. Yeah. See page 19 or whatever it was. Open up. There's a review of my travel guides. 
<laughs> right in there. Okay, next, I go upstairs to my office, loft office, and I'm looking to see what, did I get any orders for my travel guides? Usually I'll get one from Spain or England or Texas. Uh, but here is the only one order while I was gone, and it's from Ashland, Oregon, right up the street. I never get an order of a travel guide where I live. So I email these people. I say, would you like me to personally deliver these travel guides to you? Or would you like to come up and see a llama ranch? I had llamas <laughs> on the ranch. They said, we'll come up and we'll come up and see the llamas. Okay. Then I'm looking at the name, the last name of these people. And it's the same name as the person from Rahway, New Jersey. <laughs> so I say, I email back and say, is there somebody at your place here named Jan, J-A-N, Chaken, C-H-A-I-K-E-N? I get a phone call. I would be that Jan Chaken. And I yeah. even recognize his voice. Oh, I no. didn't know him that well. I mean, it was just a fraternity that I was pledging. And I was a freshman and this was a senior. I said, how did you learn of my travel guides? And he said, oh, we saw it in the Hemisphere magazine. So all this interrelated stuff, the man from Rahway, New Jersey, buys my travel guides that are in, that are written up in the Hemisphere magazine. And this all happened in this one trip. Wow. I, I just can't attribute this to chance. This yeah. is just too complicated. Okay. That's that, that story. That That's the Ashland the Ashland connection. connection which you can find in Michael Bryan's books which you can get at www.michaelbryan.com um or at bookstoread.com forward slash michael dash brian so thank you that's fantastic. I believe they're available around the world if yeah. not digitally some places uh by print so yeah. Full of these crazy ideas. Yeah, definitely. In <laughs> fact, um, I think I might be putting an order in for your UFO book because that sounds very interesting as well. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I've heard some phenomenally interesting stories and I can't just simply believe this is all nonsense. Yeah. No, there's no, something it's to too it. too much, definitely. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been brilliant talking to you. I've enjoyed it so much, and I can't believe the time's flown by so fast. I know, I know. Um, and uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, uh, the podcast, to listening to it and, and turning on a few friends to listen to it oh, and to discover your great work that you're doing. So thanks yeah, for thank having you. me as a guest. Thank I you really so appreciate much. It. Thank you for coming on, and um, I hope You're welcome. maybe we can speak again in the future. I hope so. I hope I have more things that I've learned that I can share. That would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye, Take buddy. care, Michael. Bye. Take care. Cheers. Thank you very much, Michael. That was such an interesting chat. So everybody, don't forget, if you want to have your experience on the show, you need to give me a ring and tell me your experience 
on 07935 100 162. That's 07935 100 162. Or email me your experience at paranormal or what podcast at outlook.com. Okay, so next week we have someone on from Canada and he's a gentleman called Jason Hewlett. So we'll look forward to speaking to Jason next week. Until then, everybody have a wonderful weekend. Get out there investigating and send me your experiences. So take care, everybody. Night. Thank you.